Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. This is New Books in Geography, one of the channels that make up the New Books Network. My name is Peter Ekman. I am one of the hosts on this channel, based at the University of California, Berkeley. Um, Today we are speaking with Laura Alice Watt, who has written a terrific new book called The Paradox of Preservation, Wilderness and Working Landscapes at Point Reyes National Seashore. Uh, That book was published by the University of California Press, and it was released in 2017. Uh, Laura teaches at Sonoma State University. That is, in fact, in California. It is one of the campuses in the California State University system, and it is in uh, Rohnert Park, California, more specifically, uh, which is where she uh, joins us today. Um, And she teaches in the Department of Geography, Environment, and Planning. Paradox of Preservation is a finely rendered, conceptually motivated case study in the history of an American landscape whose lessons point beyond itself, forcing reflection on how the past, present, and future of the American landscape connect, or perhaps ought to. Uh, Laura, before we get too deep into the substance of the book and the various histories that intertwine through it, um, perhaps you could give us a sense of your intellectual biography, um, and more specifically, how you came to write this book, this specific book, rather than, I suppose, some other book entirely. Some other book, sure. Um, so I, uh, I'm one of the more crazily interdisciplinary scholars around, it seems. Um, my undergrad degree was in biology at UC Berkeley, so you're at my alma mater. Very nice. Um, and uh, my parents are biologists. I always thought I was going to be a biologist because that's kind of all I knew. Um, and I went off to get a master's degree and somehow had that sort of light bulb moment in a class where I realized, oh, it's the land I'm really excited about, not just the critters running around on the land. So um, I'm not sure why that is, but um, that was really what intrigued me and uh, sort of ended up kind of getting into a PhD program by accident, <laughs> not quite accident, but um, I, I it, w- it wasn't my great ambition, but it was a recession and I decided to apply for grad school. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and there was a scholar at Berkeley, uh, Sally Fairfax, who's a real uh, U.S. public lands um, expert, one of the top people in the country in that field. And that was what I had focused on for my master's. So I said, OK, I'm going to go do that. And I took a class my first semester back in school, up in the law school as an elective, essentially, um, that was on cultural and natural preservation. And here was this law professor, Joe Sachs, who basically invented environmental law in the 1970s, um, you know, really eminent scholar. And he was taking us through things like national parks and wilderness areas and Endangered Species Act, and then also through cultural preservation, um, everything from museums to um you know, the uh, lawsuits about the Amish trying to protect themselves as a community and, 
you know, all these different sort of forms of cultural preservation. And another sort of light bulb went off and I was like, wow, there's so much in common between these two realms, one of which I had focused on a lot in my, you know, sort of biology informed background of natural resources and natural preservation. But there was this whole other side and they had a lot in common, but those the practitioners never seemed to talk to each other. And so I got really intrigued by sort of, huh, what, you know, what, what lessons can be learned back and forth from the natural to the cultural side? And, and what is this thing called preservation anyway? It seems so, um, basic. You know, we all go to parks or we all go to museums and, and there's this stuff that we go and look at. And yet it's this weird premise of trying to hold things still, trying to keep them the same. Yet, anyone with a basic ecological, you know, understanding knows that things change. <laughs> and so it just seems like this strange impulse to try and hold everything still and hold it, you know, keep, keep things from, from, from shifting. And so that is sort of where this project started from. Um, the, the project at Point Reyes was my dissertation project uh, at Berkeley. And that dissertation was finished way back in 2001. Um, I didn't go straight into an academic career, and so it kind of sat on hold for a while. Um, and then once I got my job here at Sonoma State and started working on, um, you know, started thinking about, oh, now it's time to take my old um, thesis project and, and try and turn it into a book. Um, a lot had changed at Point Reyes, and there was a big controversy that was just blowing up right then about this oyster farm. I was getting calls from people who knew I had studied, you know, done some work some historical work out there of saying, you know, hey, what do you know about this oyster farm? And like, I don't really know anything about it. Why? Mm. <laughs> um, and so this this sort of bizarre controversy blew up out of nowhere. I literally went back and looked at my old dissertation, which was focused on um, sort of the history of land management over time at Point Reyes and how things have changed um, since the place became a park, um, given that it's an agricultural landscape. Um, Anyway, I went back and looked at my dissertation, and I, the oyster farm only came up once in a footnote. It was just not something people were talking about in the late 90s when I started this historical research. Um, so it took a long time to try and redevelop that original project into something that was updated and trying to not only encompass this new controversy, but try and give it some explanation as well. Um, it was strange to be trying to write a history of something when you didn't know the ending yet. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so that's sort of, uh, it, it ended up taking longer than I expected, but in a way that was a good delay uh, because now I did know the ending. And I think the book is a more complete and, and a better thought out um, story than it would have been otherwise. I think so. Yeah. Um, the, Oysters command quite a bit of your attention in this book um, a little bit later on. Um, we will get there, no doubt. You'll be able to say quite a bit uh, to characterize the precise nature of that conflict and the different actors and stakes and stakeholders. Uh, before we do that, um, maybe you could sort of orient us um, as readers and potential readers. Tell us about Point Reyes as a place and as a landscape. Um, Point Reyes National Seashore is the uh, official name of this area. It's a fairly large area. Um, it seems to me that the land itself is crucial here. Uh, you could perhaps give us a sense. What does it look like? What does it feel like? 
And is there, in a sense, more than meets the eye? Yeah, sure. Um, so Point Reyes is a peninsula on the coast of California, about an hour's drive north of San Francisco. Um, it's shaped like a triangle um, when I, with kind of a big bite out of the middle. Um, it and it's a geologically, it's an odd. Um, I'm not a geologist, but it's an odd uh, thing in that. Um, the San Andreas Fault runs up one side of it, the eastern side of it. And so Point Reyes itself, the peninsula, is geologically very different than the rest of the coast, that it's sort of sliding tectonically along. Mm. Um, I always had it described when I was a kid as, oh, it's this little piece of Los Angeles that is you know, sort of floating north and will eventually end up near Seattle somewhere. Mm. Um, and so, uh, like I said, it's sort of a triangular peninsula. There's a... Um, there's this sort of low point of the fault on its eastern side. There's a ridge called the Inverness Ridge, um, and then sort of uh, uh, sloping plains and, and hills down to a very uh, rocky, cliffy sea, uh, shoreline. There's a few beaches, but a lot of it is very steep cliffs. So it's a very dramatic landscape. You've got the Pacific with often you know giant waves smashing into the into the coastline and um, and this mix of, of uh, coniferous forest up on the up on the ridge tops, and then these um, sloping hillsides that, in the northern portion of the seashore, are very grassy, uh, very open. In the southern part, they're now uh, the southern part is designated wilderness ever since 1976, and so there's no longer any grazing, and the areas that had been grassy have now filled in with brush or with um, with more forest. So um, it's a sort of a landscape of contrast, and the real sort of controlling factor there is the fog. Um, San Francisco is known for its fog. Point Reyes is sticking out even further west, and um, it's I, according to the great um, knowledge of Wikipedia, I realize you're not supposed to cite Wikipedia as a source, but mm -hmm. <laughs> it claims that uh, Point Reyes is the foggiest land on Earth. Um, there are foggier places at sea, but um, for places, you know, in terms of the number of days per year where the weather is categorized as fog, um, you can't get foggier than Point Reyes. Um, so there's often, it's often cold. Um, there's a, often a wind blowing in with, this, with the dense fog, marine fog that we get here. And um, so it's a pretty harsh landscape. I think people imagine, oh, I'm going to the seashore in California. I'm going to wear my bikini and I'm going to lie out in the sun and go swimming. And it's, no, it's actually quite cold and often very windy and uh, very rough seas. So um, not quite the idyllic uh, beach that most people imagine. Um, and because of that fog, then also this has been a really great place to have dairy cows um, or livestock in general, but dairy cows specifically, because um, back in the uh, 1800s, when the main product of dairies was butter and cheese rather than liquid milk, no refrigeration, so you couldn't move liquid milk around, um, but butter and cheese you could put on boats and send it to San Francisco. And the longer the cattle were on grass, eating grass, um, the better tasting the butter would be. If, you know, otherwise they'd be eating hay or feed or some other kind of feed and, and the butter didn't taste as good. And at Point Reyes, because of the, of the ever present fog, the grass actually stays greener much longer than it does anywhere else in sort of surrounding California. So, um, 
so it was a great place to grow cows and to make butter and to um, to do that. So uh, Point Reyes has been in agricultural use um, since the about 1850. Um, actually, a little bit earlier, there were uh, Mexican rancheros before uh, California became part of the United States that were running free-range cattle. And before that, there were native uh, Coast Miwok people who were managing that landscape as well. They were um, often doing a lot of burning, using fire as a land management tool to try and keep those grasslands open and to attract um, game like deer and elk to um, these open areas where they could hunt them more easily. So uh, this has been a human-managed landscape for a really long time. Um, and it's, it is a, uh, it's just an amazing place. You feel very, you know, it's very windswept. Um, it's very romantic. It looks a lot like, um, uh, sort of parts of the UK, Ireland or, or the Highlands in Scotland in, in some ways. So it's a really dramatic place. Yeah. Um, and I, I suspect this is a landscape that, that some listeners and, and readers, um, actually have ventured out to as uh, as tourists. Um, Point Reyes seems to be on the on on the circuit of you know t- touristed landscapes outside the city um, that visitors have uh, sort of flocked to. Um, and and what you say about the the, the fog and the, and the wind most definitely rings true. Sort of sort of a classic sight um, is is you know the, the the shivering San Francisco tourist at at, at four p.m. The wind and the fog have rolled back in, and they have, uh, you know, miserably shelled out a little bit of cash for 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 a sweatshirt that says San Francisco on it, has uh, has a picture of the bridge um, emblazoned across the front. So this all this all rings true. And and what you say about the you know the, the lay of the land, uh, more generally these climatic and geological considerations, um, this all rings true. And it you know it poses a set of challenges here. Um, Visual challenges, not 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 purely, um, I suppose, aesthetic challenges here. This is a, it's a difficult landscape to know uh, how to look at, um, and the Point Reyes National Seashore, that that official um, you know, demarcation on the land, it, it is a large and really quite varied piece of land. Um, I'd like to talk a little bit about the category of preservation uh, that. Preservation as a concept—it's of course central to what you're up to here. It's right there in the in the title of the book. Um, we know that there is a paradox. Um, I'd like to hear a little bit more about this uh, preservation as you know a, a key concept, an administrative concept, um, one of the main you know concepts or lenses through which the National Park Service has uh, uh, sought to. Um, perceive and also in some ways alter this landscape. Preservation also has an essentially contested concept. Um, I suppose the question is, what kind of claim does that concept, preservation, uh, make about the past? And in this case, specifically, Point Reyes, um, the question is preservation of what? What are people trying to preserve uh, to the extent that they are trying to preserve? Well, the this it's a it's a it's a complicated question to unpack a little bit um because there's of course a lot of different things being preserved and different fo- people certainly um employees of the park service tourists 
um, residents of the area, they may have very different visions of what is being preserved there. Mm-hmm. Um, to step back from Point Reyes and look at, and not even just the National Park Service, but the concept of sort of preserved areas as a whole, here in the U.S., um, they when we started having the government set aside areas and protecting them, it was really for their scenic value. Uh, the first, you know, first act of Congress to create, um, well, the second, technically, um, Congress created a hot springs national park in Arkansas um, in the 1830s, I believe, actually, mm. protecting it for its, the medicinal value of the waters. Um, but the first sort of what we think of as a as a classic national park here in the U.S. Uh, was Yosemite. It was not it was not kept in federal ownership. It was given to California, uh, which had just been made as, you know, relatively recently as a state. Um, uh, Congress set aside Yosemite Valley in 1864. Um, it actually took them two years to convince California to take it because this was a new thing. Um, parks as a, as a, as something that the government owns and protects is a very new idea in that sense. It's, it really doesn't go back much farther than, um, the 1800s. And so, what, what was intended then was the scenic value, uh, earliest parks, Yellowstone, um, Mount Rainier, places like this. They were all um, being advocated for by uh, railroad companies or in Yosemite's case, a steamship company. They wanted places to bring tourists to. This is a great business model because the tourists are going to come on the train and they're going to go back on the train and they're going to stay in the hotel while they're there. And the train company will build the hotel. Um, so they're paying the train company a whole bunch of different ways um, to come and see these amer- amazing um, American vistas. This was also very wrapped up in a sense of national pride and national distinction of saying, wow, you know, all these Western landscapes, Europe doesn't have anything like this. Um, so this means we must be so much better. So there was a lot of nationalism wrapped up in them as well. Mm-hmm. And so the earliest ideas of the parks were these sort of monumental scenery that signified the grandeur and the vitality of the United States as a nation. Um, and that that should, because we wanted, because they're so freighted with this symbolism, we don't want them to change. We want them to stay the same all the time so that you could go and look at Half Dome and it will always sort of convey the same meaning. Um, and so when the National Park Service, the agency that manages the parks, was created 50 years after the first parks, um, it sort of inherited these ideas of what a park is supposed to be like, of what, you know, that what is being preserved is this natural scenery, not ecosystems. Ecology didn't exist as a science yet, but also it really wasn't a focus on um the natural functioning of the landscape. It was really just what did it look like and people could go and be awed by it. And that was really the relationship you were supposed to have with the park. You're supposed to go and go, wow, look at that. Um, and so the National Park Service was created in 1916. Here we are, you know, a little over a hundred years later. There's a lot of different kinds of parks now. They're not all Yosemite and Yellowstone. Uh, we've got historic parks and we've got uh, historic battlefields and we've got um, seashores and recreation areas and you know all these different kinds of parks. They all have different names. I think there's you know something like 
30 different categories in the park system of uh, what things can be. But the and not the official policy of the Park Service, but kind of the ideology behind it, the 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 culture of managing national parks or the, the culture of expectations about parks here in the United States is still very informed by those earliest parks, by that sort of natural scenery that's not supposed to change. Um, and so we all get trained of sort of what a park is supposed to be what by by going to them. And we you sort of build up expectations. And I always tell my students, if I blindfolded you and, you know, plopped you by a helicopter down into some unknown landscape, you know, to ask them, what are some of the things that would give you a hint that it was a national park? And, they, you know, they're always like, oh, there's, there's brown and white signs and somebody's handing you a map that looks very distinctive. And there's someone with a green uniform and a funny little flat brimmed hat that's telling you about bears. Um, you know, there, we all kind of have those cliches of what a park is supposed to be like. And so when you create parks, more many of our more modern parks have been created not out of federally owned land, but out of privately owned land that then gets either purchased by the Park Service or they're uh, managing as a partner with either state or private landowners, different circumstances in different places. But those kinds of places don't necessarily fit that sort of Yosemite-informed ideal of what a park is supposed to be like, supposed to, in quote marks. It's just sort of, again, what our expectations are like. So, you know, when I first started working at Point Reyes, which is one of these parks, one of the earliest parks that was created out of privately owned land and out of this agricultural landscape that had been there for over 100 years at that point, um, when I first started working on the project, all, all, almost everyone that I talked to when I was explaining point, I said, like, yeah, why are there, why are there cows there? Cows don't belong in parks. You know, and it's like, well, why not? Like, well, I don't know. They're just, they don't, <laughs> so they're not, they're not usually there. <laughs> so, you know, th that really got me thinking about the, the expectations that we all take with us to a park. You know, if you go to a national, to something that's called a national park or a national park unit, whatever it is, and there isn't a visitor center, you're like, where is it? <laughs> or if there aren't restrooms for you to go use well, after your long drive, you're like, um, excuse me, <laughs> there's something missing here. You know, we, we all sort of know what, what that infrastructure is supposed to be like. So I think um, this is where the, the, the paradox of preservation comes in, not just the paradox. There are several paradoxes. I think one is that, Preservation, like I said earlier, is trying to hold something still and keep it the same, yet natural systems and cultural systems and cultural meanings are always changing. And so it's this, it's this odd, um, effort to try and do something that you can't do. Um, but the other, one of the other paradoxes is that when, as, as things are preserved, whoever is managing them or whoever is showing up as tourists and saying, hey, I want to see more of this, those expectations that we bring with us about what a park is supposed to be gradually starts to change what that place is. And so that it's that process of change that is almost, it's hard for us to see. It's very gradual over time. And um, if you're someone who only visits, you know, if you've, I've only been to Yellowstone once in my life. So what it looked like then is what it is in my head. Um, you know, it, 
if I if I visited something maybe 10 years later that I'm going to see maybe some changes. Um, but oftentimes we've just seen something once we're like, oh, that's what it's supposed to be like. Um, and so every time we come back, we're going to expect to see that same thing. Um, with a place like Point Reyes, it started off as private privately owned land being used for dairy and beef ranches, which even though the park was created out of by buying that land, the ranchers were allowed to stay in place and continue working. Um, but what you start to see over time, when you look at the historical record, is that that landscape itself is changing in a lot of major ways. But if you've just come to it in the last year or two, you're not aware of any of that earlier history unless you go and read a book about it like mine. Um, so it's trying to make that process of change that preservation itself is driving more visible. So not to say that it's good or bad necessarily, but to say, hey, we should at least be aware that these changes are taking place. Um, and then we can decide whether that's the change that we want or not. I, th I think that's very well said. Um, there's a sense... Um it comes through here that there's something about these lenses and these sort of prevailing categories and assumptions uh, that carries out a very real erasure of certain aspects of the landscape and certain aspects of the past. Um, these most some some of these most long-standing ideals and images of nature and naturalness, um, which have their own you know very complex, uh, in some ways conflicted history in the US. Um, and they also seem bound up, not exactly the same category, but but bound up with uh, the notion of wilderness, which you, of course, address as well. Um, in the case of Point Reyes, at one point in the story, you actually have one entire chapter um, uh, organized around this, we see the emergence of what strikes me as a uh, very paradoxical concept um, what the National Park Service by the 70s is calling potential wilderness, a a a, a state that uh, can be, I suppose, encouraged, if not uh, made, produced outright. Um, so what you're what you're telling, uh, what you're narrating for us is a history of alterations uh, to the landscape. They're they're very complex. They're in some ways very subtle. They elapse over very very long timescales. That a single uh, uh, visit, uh, sort of touristic visit, to this site will necessarily miss. Um, but for your book, um, you you also seem pretty invested in developing um, not just the concept of landscape, but the concept of the working landscape. And I, I wonder if we could sort of shift uh, to that um, sort of complex of concepts. Uh, now, I, I, I get the sense that work, uh, probably before all else, is um, what is being obscured uh, here. Uh, work is what they, uh, in a sense, don't want us uh, to see as a constitutive component of the landscape. Um, I, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit um, about this, um, these specific forms of work that are unfolding or have been unfolding at Point Reyes, um, uh, whether it's ranching or uh, other forms of work on the land. Um, th th there's a whole set of debates in environmental history, in uh, geography, certainly in, in other disciplines as well, about sort of the relationship between work and nature, or the work, work, work and landscape. Um, 
how should we think about this? Um, how should we think about work as a process and work as something that might itself be preserved or conserved or uh, somehow uh, stewarded or perpetuated? Yeah, I, you know, I think there's one of the the challenging things about environmentalism as a sort of a movement or a ethos, however you think about that, is that it does seem to privilege um, having a, a either a, a relationship of play. Um, Richard White wrote about this very eloquently about 20 years ago, um, or even this sort of uh, reverence, this awe, like I was saying earlier, that it was sort of the expected reaction when you went to a park, you were supposed to experience this sense of grandeur and amazement. Um, but that these kinds of relationships are privileged by environmentalism over the kind of relationship that builds up from work. And I think we all have a sense of this, that, you know, even just working in your own garden, um, if, if someone comes and does all the gardening for you, that can be nice. Um, but you end up with a different feeling about that garden than if you were the one who was toiling in the weeds. You can tell what I've been doing this last weekend. Mm. Um, <laughs> um, and, you know, there's this sense of, of working with a landscape or working with the vegetation, the animals, of, of creating a relationship, a kind of reciprocity that sounds very, um, I don't know, airy-fairy sometimes, but there's an, a sort of an investment or a reliance on the land and the all the you know the vegetation, the animals, everything you know a, that a farmer has that is um, it's much more it's again not better or worse, but just very different than the kind of relationship you build up from hiking across a landscape or something. Um, one is sort of an option. You can choose to go and hike across that landscape or you can stay home. Um, whereas if it's your work, you, you, you don't have as much of a choice about that. If you're going to make a living, you need to do this work. Um, and you need the, the environment around you to be, a, you know, sort of a partner in that, um, willingly or not. Um, so I do think it, that work creates a different relationship. And it's been pointed out that a lot of um, the, you know, the sort of the more work-like your your outdoor play is, the more sort of, I don't know, highly esteemed it is. Like, you know, if you go on a really hard backpack, people are like, oh, wow, that's really cool. Um, whereas if you just sort of go for a stroll on a paved path, he's like, ah, that's wimpy. Um, you know, we value the relationship that you get from working really hard. Um, that somehow seems more meaningful than if your you know experience with a with a uh, with a landscape or with an environment it just sort of comes easily. So we even see that 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 shift in the relationship that comes with work in those kinds of play that are where you're you're trying to make yourself work harder. Um, and so at Point Reyes, like I said, this you know it's got this long history first of of native peoples managing this land. In intentionally manipulating it to produce the kinds of resources that they wanted. They're not farming, but they are managing the land to get um, more prey animals, to get more 
uh, vegetation that they use to make basketry or to eat or, you know, whatever. They're very intentionally trying to shape what this land looks like. Um, and then you get these layers of history coming through with the Mexican period, then um, the U.S. period and the arrival of all these these ranches. And then you get in 1962, the creation of a national seashore. Um, some of that historic work is, like I said, sort of intentionally allowed to stay. That was very much um, part of what Congress was trying to create when they established the seashore there's a lot of discussion about how do we do this without driving the local ranchers out, both for economic reasons that the local economy would collapse if they had all closed at once, but also for aesthetic reasons for saying, oh, hey, is, wouldn't it be cool if people from the city in San Francisco can come out and see this pastoral landscape and appreciate that as part of their experience here? Um, so this is very much a worked landscape, but then over time as these sort of management ideals of parks start to, to take more hold. And then you also get this overlay of wilderness, like you were saying in the 1970s, these ideals that push people to the margins as work, as workers, and, and either say, we don't want that kind of relationship here. It's not appropriate in a park. It's not scenic. It maybe causes too much change. It's, it just doesn't feel like it fits. And instead, we're going to privilege this, this recreation relationship where you can come and go for a hike or you can paddle your kayak on Drake's estuary. Uh, it's called Drake's Estero. Um, and th that's the kind of relationship you're supposed to have in a park. Um, again, this idea of what belongs and what doesn't, that isn't inherent in um, anything about the landscape itself. It's just our ideas about what, what parks mean and what is supposed to happen there. Yeah, and it seems bound up with a, a, a whole set of uh, distinctions between humans and non-humans uh, more generally. Conceptual distinction and, you know, as as entities in the world. And interestingly, too, the other, the other work that becomes invisible to most people in all sort of uh, managed landscapes is the managers themselves. We don't tend to think of you know, we go and, and maybe go to a park and we see, oh, there's a ranger giving a talk about some, you know, topic, the elephant seals or something. But we otherwise, we don't really think that much about the employees who do work there. Um, and one of the odd characteristics at Point Reyes, um, as the number of people who are residents working in agriculture doing sort of private um enterprise on the landscape as the number has dwindled over the years. And it has um, point raised when it was created in 62 had 25 operating ranches and now on the peninsula. Now there's 11. So fewer than half remain um, for a variety of reasons. But as those numbers have gone down, the number of people living and working in the park is probably the same or larger because you have employees of the park service who come in um, and often live in the old buildings that used to be, um, you know, the ranchers housing. Now they're housing park service employees. Um, and yet because the park service, like almost any agency has relatively high turnover, especially sort of at the, um, at the more, L, uh, entry level, um, positions, there's often a lack of knowledge of this landscape. So these are people who have not lived in it for a long time and have not established a lengthy relationship through work. Um, the same way that the folk, the, the families who 
live and work on the ranches have. Many of them are fourth, fifth, sixth generation, which in California is unusual. Um, back east, maybe a little, a little less unusual, but uh, here for, for the same family to be in the same place for six generations is pretty, pretty strange. Um, and so over time, they've built up a different, a, a, a longer, a deeper relationship with the place. Um, park service employees are often here for two years and then they leave because the park service as a, as an agency has a policy that if you're going to be promoted, you have to move. Um, they want to create loyalty to the agency instead of to the place. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so you do get this high turnover. And so folks who are working on the ranches and having to deal with the range manager or, um, the natural resource manager, everything, they're constantly having to deal with new people. Um, who don't know the history of this place very well, um, which again was a good reason to write the book to just say, hey, this should be an instruction manual for new employees. Like, at least understand what, where the place that you're working came from, and that it has not always been exactly the way that you found it. Yeah. So, so the presence of uh, work as a process by which the landscape changes, yeah, that seems uh, somewhat outside this. Uh, uh, sort of official visual framing of things, um, uh, and I mean, not, not not to mention, as you as you point out, the fact is that people are uh, living in the park. Uh, that 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 I don't know, sort of received idea of of nature or, or wilderness. It seems that it must be uh, uninhabited. Uh, seems you know, categorically other than uh, the the state of affairs that you're uh, putting forward. So this case kind of radically disrupts those assumptions in. In a lot of ways, um, I very much like the way you've uh, you've 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 posed this. Um, you know, we're looking at the work of various people and and groups on the landscape. Uh, in a sense, we're also trying to think about the work of the landscape, the work you know carried out by the lands, by the waters, by various forms of non-humans, be they cattle, be they oysters. Um, and you're sketching this, you know, this this uh, very complex uh, interlocking system of mutual obligations and affordances, which is, you know, is is in fact difficult to conceptualize. It's difficult to interpret for uh, for tourists. And your book seems to mark a, you know, I think a crucial first step in that direction. Um, let's now talk about one uh, specific constituency here, uh, namely the oysters and the oyster farmers. There's a whole complex of, of actors and conflicts here. Um, and as I, as you said before, this is what? This is sort of bubbling up in the first years of the 21st century or so? Sure. So um, so there, there are a number of oyster farms in the sort of um, West Marin area. In fact, oyster farm, oyster raising used to be a big industry in the San Francisco Bay um, back at the turn of the 19th of the 20th century. Um, and the particular oyster farm that was in the inside the boundaries of uh, Point Reyes National Seashore had been there for about 80 years, uh, started operating in the 1930s and had become sort of, you know, a real even before this area was a park, uh, you know, a, a local um, sort of favorite spot to go and have a picnic. People would go and buy, you know, two dozen oysters and they'd sit there and crack them open and have a picnic. And, and um, so a lot of sort of long um, 
long returning customers that would keep coming back every year and to do that. Um, but like you said, uh, it's part of the seashore and it got mixed up in, in 1976 when there was wilderness designated at Point Reyes. Um, the federal government came up with this, this new category in that legislation of potential wilderness where they said, Hey, you know, here, we, we want to create as much, we want to designate as much wilderness as possible. It's being driven very much by a uh, public desire for designated wilderness at that point. This is the middle of the 70s, so the environmental movement is booming and, and people want to see more wilderness. And they said, well, federally recognized wilderness have to ha- has to have certain qualities. It has to be roadless and it has to be uh, 5,000 acres contiguous or larger. Um, and it has to be generally untouched, quote unquote, by humans, um, or that at least the human imprint was, is mostly not visible and sort of, you know, mo- you mostly experience this natural, um, world with a sense of solitude and a sense of, of not being sort of part of the, the human everyday. Um, even though it's very much about visual experience of that and not so much about whether there actually is a human intrusion in the landscape. Things like um, power lines, they don't want to be visible on poles, but if you put them underground where you can't see them, they're fine. Um, so that kind of thing. Anyway, this new ca- this category was created saying, so there's these landscapes that almost meet all of the federal criteria, but they don't quite. There's something not quite there, but we think that maybe that will change at some time in the future. So We'll create this de- this category called potential wilderness, where we'll designate that as well. We'll say it's like wilderness. We'll manage it as if it's wilderness. And if someday in the future it comes to meet all of the criteria for full wilderness, then instead of having to go back to Congress for another piece of legislation to designate it, we can just post a notice in the Federal Register and boom, it's done. So it's kind of a shortcut for creating more designated wilderness. And the estuary that the oyster farm operates in, where it's the oyster racks are, was designated as potential wilderness at that time. And when I went back and looked in the history, the reason, a lot of people assumed in more recent years, the reason why it had been designated potential wilderness, not full, was because of the presence of the oyster farm. And oddly, in the 1970s, the presence of the oyster farm was not considered to be incompatible with their concept at the time of wilderness. Um, that some human use, especially that had been there for a while, that was sort of grandfathered in, um, small-scale, sustainable use of this landscape was considered okay, totally compatible with their idea of wilderness at the time. The reason why it was designated as potential wilderness was because the federal government didn't have full ownership of it. The state of California technically had owned the all of the tidelands around, well, it does everywhere in the state, and in 1965, the state had ceded the land underneath Drake's Estero to the federal government, except it had retained fishing and mineral rights. And according to the lawyers at the time in the 70s, they said, if you don't have the full rights, you don't have full ownership, you don't have the whole thing in federal ownership, it cannot be wilderness. So it was called potential wilderness. They said, hey, maybe California will give up those rights someday and then we'll make it full. So... Um, the oyster farm had been operating since the 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 it the company first called Joint Johnson's Oyster Company, then later renamed 
Drake's Bay Oyster Company under different ownership. Um, they, the, the land that the, that their facilities sat on on land, um, was originally owned by Johnson's Oyster and they had to sell to the National Park Service, but they had a 40 year, what's called a, a reservation of use and occupancy where they took a lower purchase price from the federal government back in 1972 in exchange for the right to continue operating as if they owned it still for 40 years. Um, and that's how most of all, all of the ranches that are still operating in national seashore, uh, stayed originally in operation. Um, the ranches though had only taken 20 year reservations. Um, and so they all had those reservations had expired in the 1990s. And all the ranchers just switched over to having either leases or special use permits. Congress had passed a law in 1978 creating an, this mechanism saying this is how we're going to allow people to keep, keep staying in place and keep operating. Um, so the oyster farms reservation, this 40 year reservation was due to expire in 2012. And there had always been the expectation that just like the ranches had, they would switch over to a special use permit at that time. Um, but in 2007, the Park Service announced that, no, that was not going to happen, that they would be forced to um, force the, the oyster farm to shut down in 2012 when the reservation expired because of wilderness law, because alleging that the estuary as potential wilderness had to convert over into full wilderness at the first opportunity. This was, I think, based on a misreading of some of the historic documents that uh, Congress had written back in the 70s. Mm. Um, but it was, it, it was an argument that made sense for people's understanding of wilderness today, which is actually a much more sort of absolutist vision. Um, in the 1990s, wilderness movement really started to shift with organizations like Earth First and with the whole ethos of um, leave no trace. These are relatively new ideas that, that were not present when the wilderness area at Point Reyes was created in the 1970s, where it was this much more inclusive, um, hey, wilderness is a great way to try and keep, in the case of Point Reyes, to keep motorized recreation out, because motorized recreation is not allowed in wilderness areas. And looking back through a lot of the letters and, and other documents from that period of time, it's clear that was the intention of designating the estuary as potential wilderness. They were worries about jet skis, basically, or people driving um, dune buggies on the beach. They want to make sure to keep that stuff out. So that was the rationale for why it needed to be wilderness designated as wilderness or potential wilderness in this case. But our understanding of wilderness today is a much more um, exclusive one in the sense of, you know, it's this idea of there can be no human activity except for recreation, that any commercial use of this landscape is somehow antithetical to the concept of wilderness, which is, like I said, very different than how they felt in the 1970s. Um, but so the argument that, oh, of course the oyster farm is going to have to close down in order to make way for becoming the first marine wilderness on the West Coast, um, it made sort of intuitive sense to people who like the idea of wilderness. It just wasn't historically accurate. Um, and so there was this vague argument that ends up sort of exploding across 
from 2007 all the way through um, to 2012, when the the reservation was due to expire, of whether or not the oyster farm should be forced to close down. There were a lot of sort of scientific claims arguing that the oyster farm was causing environmental damage. None of those claims have held up. Um, and again, it makes no intuitive sense. Oysters are filter feeders. They clean water column of a lot of extra nutrients. They don't cause a lot of of um, pollution or anything. Mm-hmm. And in fact, oysters are being used up and down the East Coast to restore a bunch of um, estuary uh, environments um, like the Chesapeake and, and other places like that, where they're deliberately putting oysters back into the system to try and improve environmental quality. So it just made no intuitive sense that the oyster farm was damaging things here on the West Coast when it's improving things on the East Coast. Um, and ultimately, the the strength of that intuitive link of wilderness and not having work, not having commercial use, um, prevailed. The oyster farm was forced to close down. They tried to bring a lawsuit, um, and in fact, it went all the way to the Supreme Court, but the Supreme Court declined to hear it. So um, they were forced to close. They closed their doors in December 2014, and the Park Service has since removed all the oyster racks and the buildings. Um, and if you go out to the to the the place where those buildings were now, the interpretive sign doesn't actually mention the oyster farm's existence at all, even though it had been there for 80 years. So this is the kind of erasure that's, as as you put it earlier, that's very dramatic in this case, but it's kind of a, a, a dramatic example of stuff that's happening all the time, of these histories that are disappearing. And unless there's something there, either through park service interpretation, through a sign, or through a display in the visitor center, or through a book that someone can pick up and read, unless there's something to tell you that was there before, there's no way for, for a newcomer to know. Um, and so a newcomer arrives and says, oh, look, here's this beautiful, pristine estuary with no human use at all. It must have always been this way. Okay, right, great. Um, so maybe you could sort of set the stage here then. Uh, you could, uh, you know, as, as much history, as many names and dates as you as you desire, um, maybe you could just sort of explain, uh, you know, what, what happened, who was arguing with whom, um, what happened there? Yeah, well, the, the it's interesting. The oyster sort of a controversy in West Marin and Marin County where Point Reyes is located really split the community. Um, there were literally people who would, um, as I was, as, as people would tell me, there's so and so would cross the street to tell you how wrong you were, mm. <laughs> you know, <laughs> if you were on one side or the other. And I think there are some people who still basically don't speak to each other because of this rift. Um, it was incredibly damaging, and it it always sounds so strange because here's wilderness advocates and sustainable agriculture advocates. Ordinarily, those people are friends; that they're all on the same side, and they're you know against the you know big petroleum companies or something. Here, they were you know in a pitched battle and still very angry over a lot of this. So, in that sense, there's still some unhealed wounds, I think. The other thing that has, even though the oyster farm itself has closed, now there's been new, um, since 2012 and continuing to right now, um, controversy and questions about whether 
the longtime ranches should remain as well. There's a, a number of um, of groups that are interested in trying to shut them down and push them out. Again, with this refrain of that, you know, agriculture is important. Ranching is great. It's very, you know, sort of classic Western um, iconography, et cetera, but it doesn't belong in a national park. Um, and this sense of some things belong and some don't, again, those are just our expectations. Those are just our ideas. There's nothing inherent about agriculture that is good or bad in a park. Um, people who go uh, to visit other countries, whether they're in Europe or in um, Africa, South America, you often find people living and working in parks. Um, it's a more expect, it's a more understood, uh, part of what can be protected that the, that relationship with the land and those traditional land uses are what are the focus of preservation in those cases. Um, here in the U.S., we haven't had that tradition. We don't tend to, because we have this more sort of scenic vista tradition of parks, it can be very hard for people to understand and to, to accept the presence of, of work and the presence of, of residents in a natural landscape. We have been taught that humans are bad, humans are damaging, they're terrible. Um, and so we have this continuing controversy there. Uh, I'm waiting to see a new planning draft planning document um, come out of Point Reyes about the ranches uh, that's expected later this summer. Um, and there's folks that are arguing about it all the time still in the news. Um, so some things change, some things stay the same. Uh, what's fascinating is how it is really these same arguments about, you know, what, what belongs in a park and who gets to say. Um, and one of the things that I find troubling is how the local communities often don't really have any different level of say than someone from New Jersey who's never visited Point Reyes, but, you know, reads a newsletter that says, oh, help us protect this park. Um, voice your opposition to these industrial ranchers now. Their public comment has exactly the same weight in the planning process that someone who lives and works there and is dependent on it. And to me, that there's something... There's something a little unfair about that. Mm -hmm. that, that, and so one of the things I'm hoping this book will help um, help raise uh, more awareness and and maybe bring some some more attention to is is the power of, of community based collaborative approaches to doing land management where it's not all top down from the national scale um, but really involves people who know the landscape in this sort of intimate way that you get with a working relationship. Um, that's been very successful in a lot of parts of the country. Um, when the Malher, um, I think I'm pronouncing that wrong, but the Malher Wildlife Refuge up in mm -hmm. Oregon was taken over by the, the Bundys and other um, sort of pretty conservative um, activists a number of several years ago, they were trying to get the locals in that area to you know tear up their grazing leases and break free from the federal oppression that they were experiencing. And they didn't. They not a single person, was, you know, in the local uh, community switched over, in part because they had just gone through a collaborative, community-based planning process with that federal wildlife refuge, um, and they had felt a part of, and that their input was was 
made part of the management plan. And that had the power. It, it, it meant that they were like, no, we don't want to break free. We're, we're partners in this. And so I'd really love to see a similar kind of approach at Point Reyes where, um, we're focusing on community needs and community input and, and taking a more collaborative approach would, I think would benefit enormously. I suppose this is my opportunity to note that I am in fact from New Jersey. I don't know if this, uh, disqualifies me here. Um, uh, you're, you're from there you're, you're yourself. Uh, uh, Laura, we will, we will talk about this on our own time. Um, uh, one, one last question, I guess here, um, so, sort of a more conceptual or methodological question. Um, uh, so, so much of what we've been saying here, um, about preservation, about landscape, um, about work and its elision, uh, they all speak to sort of an underlying interest in the category of landscape itself. And there's been a lot of debate. I mean, there has been a lot of debate in, in geography, especially over what landscape is in the first place, um, to what extent it is a uh, natural phenomenon versus a cultural thing versus some sort of hybrid um, of the natural and the cultural. It's been quite a lot of debate over, you know, through what... Uh, through what senses or faculties should we even be attempting to grapple with the landscape in the first place, uh, whether it's primarily visual experience that we are interested in, or whether it's um, you know a more embodied uh, form of of encounter to apprehend the materiality of the world um, around us, and you know debate over whether whether the term landscape re refers to something that is seen versus. Um, you know, is, is it a view of the world versus uh, a segment of the physical world itself? We, we, we really don't need to go uh, too deep into these debates uh, by, by any means. And I think you very carefully uh, sort of split the difference uh, uh, between the kind of extreme positions uh, here. And, and I read you as saying that, you know, it's not just that it's not just that work on the landscape is a process we can and perhaps should think of the landscape itself as a process. Landscape is at root an interaction of people and places rather than just one of those things or the other. And again, you, you bring together a whole uh, a variety of literature here um, and you seem to be deploying a concept that sort of implicitly draws on uh, J.B. Jackson's concept of the cultural landscape um, uh, a little bit more than one that is... Uh, sort of categorically rooted in the natural uh, uh, world. Um, but the, the, the standing of uh, vision here, the visual dimension does seem crucial to what you are up to. And it's, it's worth noting, um, you know, I'd like to talk a little bit about the, the, uh, the role of images in the book more generally. You are an avid and I think uh, generally pretty effective photographer. And at the head of each one of these chapters, um, there is one uh, uh, black and white image sort of perched at the head of the chapter. Um, I think, if I'm not mistaken, you have taken all of these photos um, uh, across your years of engagement with this place. Um, other forms of visual uh, evidence uh, appear, maps and uh, planning documents. Um, but the photography uh, stands out to me. It's, it seems crucial here as part of your uh, methodology. And I'd like to ask about that. How should we 
how should we think about the work of images? Um, how do these, um, in a sense, frame the argument that you are putting forward? And more generally, I guess, uh, the, the role of looking at the landscape as part of your methodology. How should we think about that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I um, I, ha- I am a, a very um, enthusiastic photographer. I've been taking pictures since I was eight. It's almost like breathing for me. Um, and the, the images I used as um, frontispieces for the chapters are actually all um, specifically Polaroids. And there's a specifically the peel-apart Polaroid film, um, which Polaroid decided a number of years ago um, that it just wasn't going to make it anymore. It said, you know, the digital is the wave of the future and um, we don't, you know, we don't need this old fashioned technology anymore. We're just going to stop making it. And oddly when they, um, I realize this is a tangent, but it does end up coming back around. Um, When the company Polaroid decided to stop making the film, they not only just stopped making it, they smashed all the machinery (laughs) that they had um, been using to make uh, these kinds of films. And so it was this very deliberate removal of that technology, of that way of interacting with the world um, that I was very unhappy about since I loved this kind of film and the kind of quality that it it had. And so I I found myself um, through sort of the, the early 2010s, as I was wrapping this book up, I found myself going out and, and photographing aspects of the landscape at Point Reyes that um, either had sort of been erased or that were still uh, had this more um, ongoing working relationship by using this particular film, um, because it seemed like a similar process of saying, hey, we're making choices here about whether we're going to keep this working relationship or we're going to not only take it away, but we're going to smash its, you know, the machinery that we make it so that you can't do that anymore. Um, which is like removing the oyster racks from, um, from the estuary and tearing down the buildings. It just seemed like a parallel to me. Um, I do think that when you think about sort of landscape as a concept, the visual is, is, all the senses are very important. Our, you know, our emotional relationship to a landscape informs how we see it. I always, you know, with my students, again, I, I give the example of, you know, if you're visiting a, a Civil War battlefield, you're going to feel very different if you're um, someone from the South versus someone from the North. Um, were you on the losing side or the winning side? You might feel very different if you are African American versus of white ancestry. Um, you know, that who you are and the ideas and emotions that you bring to a place informs how you experience it. Um, it literally can look different or you may see different things in it as a result. And with Point Reyes, the, the power of the visual has always been a big part of what was being protected there. Part of it was beach access. In the 1960s, there was concern that we were going to develop all of our beaches and have condos everywhere. And um, so we needed these national seashores all around the country and lakeshores to protect some open beach access for the, for the public. But when you read the, the arguments that people are making, they're often really couched in visual terms of the way the place looks, of how um, untouched it seems, of how primitive it seems. 
Um, in fact, the ranches are being seen as part of that primitive nature until the wilderness arguments start laying on 10 years later, and then suddenly they are problems and need to be pushed to the side to make way for wilderness. Um, there's a wonderful quote during the wilderness hearings in the 1970s from a Sierra Club representative who was arguing that the, the, the quarter-mile coastal strip should along the, the main, uh, one of the main sides of, of the triangle of the peninsula um, should be should be designated as wilderness, and some folks were saying, but there's a parking lot for the beach and restrooms, and there's an active dairy right behind there, and like, how can this be wilderness? It's this little tiny strip of land, and they said, yeah, there's a parking lot and there's a dairy, but if you stand on the beach and you look out at the Pacific with its great waves, and you know, it's that you have this such a feeling of isolation and of being, you know, in this wild environment that it didn't matter that there was a parking lot right behind you. Um, so that, in in the Sierra Club representative's view at that time, it was that visual experience that made it wilderness and not the actual presence or absence of cars in the parking lot. Um, so I do think that a lot of how we understand what, what parks are or aren't, what belongs there or not, is really based in sort of our visual experience. Um, and, you know, the, the fact that if the power lines, if you can't see them, we don't mind if they're there. <laughs> um, it's just, it's, it's really, it's quite striking. And when you start to notice how much that visual is driving your experience with places, it, it, it I don't know, it's funny. Once, once you start seeing that relationship, it, it's hard to unsee. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, it does. Uh, this is a methodological question, but it's more than that. Vision and visual experience, these become administrative categories as well. Uh, implicitly, perhaps, but, but, but they do. And, and it is very striking when you have a photograph of um, you know, the oyster farm when the buildings were still there, and then you show a, a photograph of it now where the, everything's been torn down. And you put those next to each other, and people really they mm-hmm. gasp. They're, they're quite struck by how... Thoroughly, things are erased. Um, there's a one ranch out in the seashore where the family was evicted around 2000, and the Park Service has been doing some work on some of the buildings. But when when buildings are not lived in, when they're not being maintained, they tend to fall apart pretty quickly, especially in the ocean air and the the very um, uh, moisture laden fog wind. So things fall apart pretty quickly, and there is a creamery. At this, um, at the, it's the D Ranch, the Horick Ranch, um, that was already sort of dilapidated, and I, I happened to be taking photographs of it, amongst other things, over time. And so now, when I'm giving a slideshow, I can show, you know, here's the creamery in 2003, and here's what it looks like in 2007. It's a little more fallen, little, little, little worse for wear. And then in 2008, it collapses, and so people are like, oh, yeah, they're so startled to see that change. And then in 2012 or whenever the next photo is, it's gone. It's been cleaned up and disappeared. So um, the the ability to record things visually with photography, I think, is also a really powerful way of showing that change over time in a visceral way that people really react to. So um, that's part of why I've, I've continued to go out there and take more pictures now, even though the book 
Absolutely. Yeah. And, and the book, One Hopes, does some of the same work. Uh, you know, this is a discrete number of images that, uh, that appear in it, but you, you get the sense that it's a small deposit of a much larger and broader uh, commitment here. And, and that's fascinating, too, about that, uh, that, that specific uh, Polaroid technology and its discontinuation. I mean, it's actual uh, physical destruction, uh, as, you, as you've described. Um, so, uh, Laura, if, if you'd like to say more about the project um, uh, off the top of your head, I'd be glad to hear um, maybe uh, more, if you wish, about how this case might uh, uh, travel beyond the confines of California, uh, informing other environmental conflicts, um, other uh, cases of uh, where, where preservation is at issue, um, or... Um, would also love to hear about what you're working on now. Um, if you've got another uh, book in the works, a sort of successor to this project in some ways, or um, perhaps one that uh, departs from it uh, radically. Thank you. Um, it's funny. I, I always joke that historians don't know if something is going to be a book until they've actually done the research because you never quite know what you're going to find. Um, I do think with regard to point rates, like I said, there's sort of ongoing public debate about how this landscape should be managed. So that's, it's very much a continuing conversation and continuing process. I think too, that it is a, um, a harbinger in some ways of debates. We're going to be having more and more, especially as, uh, with a changing climate, um, many of the places that we have thought of as being unchanging for forever places like Yosemite and Yellowstone are themselves going to be changing. And I think, you know, the, the question I, I wrote a short article about Joshua tree national park a number of years ago, and Joshua trees are a, a, a species that likes slightly cooler desert temperatures. Um, it doesn't do well in super, super hot environments. And in fact, in, in Joshua tree national park, the Joshua trees themselves are at the highest elevations now because those are the coolest parts of the park. And so with um, temperatures going up in the, probably the next few decades, there will probably not be any Joshua trees anymore in Joshua Tree National Park. Um, we're losing the glaciers in Glacier National Park. So I think trying to understand how to work with change over time in a preservation setting is going to be more and more important. And how we do that, the process we take, both in terms of sort of public conversations about how that should be done, how we try to remember things that are no longer there, um, how we make space for ephemerality, if that makes any sense. Um, because things are going to be changing, and they're going to be changing fast. And so I think there's, there's a lot to be learned from that. Um, and again, the contrast between this sort of U.S. park ideal versus the rest of the world. And the rest, the rest of the world is doing preservation and protection in very different ways of allowing more space for change, I think. Um, so we're going to have to, th this will be a useful case study for those kinds of, of conversations going forward, not just here in California, but across the mm -hmm. nation and maybe worldwide. Um, as far as my own research, um, I am currently working on a very different project that is a, um, a history of a biological field station <laughs> in the high Rockies of Colorado. Um, it's the, the, it's called the Rocky Mountain Biological Laboratory. It's built on the site of an old silver mining town 
from the 1880s, the town called Gothic, it only lasted for four years or so. Um, but since the late 1920s, has been a, a research station where um, I have a very personal connection to. My parents met there in 1962. Um, I spent all my childhood summers there. And so this is a fun way not only to think about the landscape and how it has affected the science that's done at this station and how the science that's done there has affected the landscape, but then also to tell a, a slightly more personal story of um, a lot of how I became interested in this sort of this this linkage of nature and culture and how to talk about these two qualities together has come from this place because it is, uh, you know, it's wild, remote Rockies and there's all this biological research being done, but then there's this backdrop of, um, of mining history and a little bit of Native American history as well. Before that, it was an area Native Americans didn't live in necessarily year round. It's too, um, cold in the wintertime, but they were utilizing um, and then a more recent history of, of, again, wilderness and recreation and trying to sort of get all these things to come together in a story. Um, and I'm also, <laughs> I, so I'm working on that, which has been a lot of fun going back and um, re-experiencing this place that I spent so much of my childhood. But I've also become completely infatuated with Iceland um, after visiting there to, on some photography trips in recent years. And um, I'm now trying to put together an, a a project that might end up looking more like the Point Reyes project, hmm. um, even though it's in a very different country. Uh, arguments about um, who should be living in an area that is very remote and very wild and environmentalists in the main city saying, oh, you can't have an electrical uh, hydropower plant in this area because it's untouched wilderness. And the people who live there are saying, excuse me, we live here. <laughs> Um, so I might end up going to Iceland for a while. This sounds great. Yeah. I mean, these are three very different landscapes, certainly, but my sense is that you are posing, uh, some of the same questions, uh, of all of them. And once you're done with Iceland, of course, you can keep moving east and, uh, before too long, you'll be back in California, I'm sure. And we'll be glad to have you. Um, in all seriousness, though, um, I would like to thank you, Laura. Um, this has been terrific. This has been New Books in Geography, one of the channels that make up the New Books Network. My name is Peter Ekman at University of California, Berkeley, one of the hosts on this channel. And we have been uh, discussing the paradox of preservation, wilderness, and working landscapes at Point Reyes National Seashore. The author's name is Laura Alice Watt. Uh, the publisher is the University of California Press, and they put this book out back in 2017. It's still a new book, as far as we are concerned. Thank you so much, Laura. Thank you. Really enjoyed it.